You're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, the podcast that's part history, part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing, I'm not from here. So in each episode, I sit down with someone who is from the Midwest, and together we discuss well-known inventions, people, and social trends that started in the middle of America. With me in studio today, acting as my Midwest co-host, is Dr. Michael Dixon, president and CEO of Unimed. Well, hi, Emily. Thanks so much for having me here today. Thank you for coming into the studio. And I'm so excited to have you in on this conversation because today we are talking about the treatment of a disease, a disease that we rarely think about in the U.S. anymore. Uh, That's malaria. And this may seem like something far removed from the American Midwest, but as we'll find out in this episode, well into the 1900s, it was a problem here. And there is even some current research here in the American Midwest connecting us to the treatment of this worldwide disease, which is why I have brought you into our studios today. Dr. Dixon, can you tell me a little bit about Unimed and its role in malaria treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Since I'm at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, we've actually got some very interesting research going on in malaria. So then our job at Unimed is to protect those ideas and find commercial partners that will develop them into products that make the world a better place. So in this episode, one of the researchers that we will be hearing from, I know, is someone who you've worked a lot with, uh, but I'm going to start with someone at the University of Nebraska Medical Center who I don't think that you know. This is Dr. Caroline Ung. I'm Caroline Ung. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Microbiology. So her lab, in particular, they look at situations of drug resistance and develop treatments working around that. I caught up with her in the evening on an online Zoom conference call when she was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which is a 14-hour time difference. Good morning. (laughs) Good evening to you. So she was on her way to a work conference, but this is early 2020 when we're taping this episode. So the outbreak of the novel coronavirus changed her plans. I was on my way to a conference in Singapore, but it got canceled because of the novel coronavirus, or I guess now it's called COVID-19. And then I'm on my way to another conference in Australia, and I stopped by Malaysia because my family actually lives here. So, of course, we didn't plan this, but it's it's timely for this episode. Uh, you know, it, it is fascinating. She's there right now traveling in, in the midst of all of it. You know, our, our active research around uh, the novel coronavirus is, is just exploding. It's, it's happening at a rapid it, fire pace. It is. This is the mm-hmm. fastest I've ever seen any of these programs get stood up. We're, we're already doing clinical studies right now. Which is amazing that we are, we've are we reached a point in science where we can move this quickly when we need to. Yeah. So I did want to bring Dr. Caroline Ung into the conversation, even though she was way overseas, to give us some background on the malaria parasite and the disease. But before we get into the serious stuff, here's Dr. Ung on her favorite type of malaria treatment. Oh, I love this. Gin and tonic is my drink of choice. And every time I order it, I say, because... Uh, I don't want to get any malaria. (laughs) 
Okay, so what she's referring to is the key ingredient in tonic water, quinine, was one of the original treatments for malaria. But this is a joke. While quinine is still used in some cases to treat malaria, first trimester of pregnancy, for example, you would need a much larger dose than what you're going to get at happy hour. So I think in tonic water, the FDA approves about 83 milligrams per liter. And if you have malaria, adults are dosed with 500 milligrams every eight hours. And that is equivalent to six liters of tonic water every eight hours. So I doubt that drinking a gin and tonic here and there is going to have an effective anti-malarial <laughs> treatment. Sounds like a uh, clinical study I want to participate in, though. <laughs> <laughs> Only between the hours of 5 and 7 p.m.? That's, that sounds about right, yeah. Okay, so we can't claim that the American Midwest invented the gin and tonic. That dates back to British colonies in India in the mid-1800s. However, what we can claim is that one of the first physicians to promote the use of quinine for malaria treatment was a Midwestern doctor. Dr. John Sappington of Arrow Rock, Missouri. And Arrow Rock is an interesting place. It's named after this bluff where uh, Native Americans would make tools and flints from the rock there. This is writer and columnist Sarah Richardson. We spoke over the phone about Dr. Sappington and his quinine pills. I'm an editor at American History Magazine, um, and I produce a column called Cameo where I focus on little-known figures in American history that have had a bigger impact than people might have ever imagined. And this cameo column, she writes, is super well-researched, and she says that Dr. Sappington was really one of the trickiest characters for her to track down. Yeah, it took a lot of combing. Of all the characters I've written about, I think John Sappington is probably the least well-known. But she did track him down, and along with some strange personal details like his fear of being buried underground, so he had an above-ground lead casket made for himself. <laughs> but this story actually begins in 1776 when he was born into a medical family in Tennessee. He, his father was a doctor. He went on to become a doctor. He got some training, but training at that time was pretty abysmal because the prevailing medical theory was people were sick because their humors were out of balance. And these humors were blood, bile, and phlegm. And it was common medical practice at the time to drain the body of blood or induce vomiting to cleanse the body and balance the humors. Bleeding, vomiting, purging. It's it does seem crazy. So it was very crude. And he didn't like that. He was very clear that, that he did not think that, that was a good way to proceed. So he pretty much ditched the medical profession as we know it and kind of pursued his own path. He did complete some medical training in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but because he disagreed so wholeheartedly with the notion of these humors and these kinds of treatments, he left the institution before taking any exams. Clearly, he, he did not like what he saw in terms of how patients were being treated, and he picked up, went to Missouri, and did it his way, I guess. That is amazing that he uh, he left and, and did that. It does bring up interesting questions, though, and we've come across this in one of our other episodes about doctor non-doctors <laughs> in, in history who've done really important things, really innovative things. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, innovators often are, are pushing the bounds. They're they're doing things differently. And you know, uh, back then, there, this was this was probably sacrilege to to be doing things differently. But you know, he made a difference. And if you have not listened to our previous episode called "Everybody Loves a Baby," I would suggest tuning into that one because we do talk a lot about this pretty tricky dynamic of someone who is responsible for medical innovations, but basically lied about their medical training. If you want more on that conversation, I would recommend checking out that episode. So, you, you know, at this time that we're talking about, though, the term doctor was used pretty loosely. I mean, the American Medical Association wasn't even started until 1847, which is almost 30 years later than the time period that we are talking about right now. So. John Sappington does go by Dr. John Sappington, and he moves him and his family to Arrow Rock, Missouri in 1819. Arrow Rock is right along the Missouri River. You can barely even find it on a map now. It's, it's very small, but it's very historic. I would love to go there someday. And of course, the question is, why? Why this small town in Missouri? Well, just about 15 years before, the U.S. had made a pretty big purchase, the Louisiana Purchase. So I think it was a whole push of people trying to make their way in the what had been, you know, Louisiana Purchase, huge tract of land that in 1803 the United States purchased from France. So here we are, two decades later, and I think he is trying to, yeah, make his way, make some money. So as the Western Territory in the United States was being settled, of course, there are many things that made the journey and the settlement difficult, but malaria disease was one of the biggest barriers to this movement. I had had no idea that malaria was such a, uh, an impediment to that movement of people. And now, of course, we understand the parasite and the cause of the disease pretty well. But people did not know that at the time of John Sappington. They only knew that there's this terrible things that would come and go fevers, chills. I mean, it can be deadly, it can be chronic. Uh, I mean, one source I read said that it was um, the most common disease in the country. So Dr. John Sappington recognizes there's a need for treating the sickness that was affecting so many people. And luckily for him, the Santa Fe Trail, a major trade route for transporting goods in those days, was established just a few years after he arrived. And Arrow Rock, became a hot spot on the trail. And it became this pathway for trade, white settler trade, of, on the Santa Fe Trail, which went from St. Louis, Missouri, over down into Santa Fe and further down into Mexico. So he was basically an entrepreneur. He was a doctor, he was a timber man, and had a shop in Arrow Rock. And some say that that's actually the reason that he moved, because William Bucknell, who pioneered the trail, tipped him off that it was going to become a hot spot along the trail. In any case, he sets up shop there in Arrow Rock. And, and malaria really was a big problem at the time in the United States. You know, some papers that I've read cite that malaria was the most deadly disease on the Santa Fe Trail. I, that is amazing. Um, you know, I, I didn't know that history prior to talking to you about this, and I'm, I'm really fascinated that it was that big of a an, deal, and I don't remember hearing about this in my, my history classes growing up. You know? mm -hmm. Here's Sarah Richardson with a little bit more on that history. It was everywhere, pretty much, where there was swampy ground, where mosquitoes could breed. 
But the fascinating thing in terms of American history and even the New World is that malaria is not native to the hemisphere. It was brought over with Europeans and Africans, enslaved Africans. And it's worth pointing out that this disease was brought in large part to the U.S. through slave trade. And then later it was treated with quinine pills that Dr. Sappington produced in part with slave labor. And it just points out the complicated nature of medical history in America. In, the, in so many ways, we cannot untangle early American medical history from our history of slavery. And we know that Sappington was a slaveholder. We know mm -hmm. that's part of the history. Mm -hmm. We do have to acknowledge that it, it's as so much of American medical history that there's a role there. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that it was it was actually brought over on those ships yeah. and, and it, it, it um, clearly expanded and, and thrived here for so long, you know, that, that whole complicated history, it's, that would be a whole nother podcast mm -hmm. on its own. And, and so just how malaria did not start in the U.S., neither did the treatment for it. For that, we have to travel south, to South America, mid 1600 South America. So what we call quinine was one of the original treatments for malaria, and it comes from the bark of a tree found primarily in South America, called the chinchona tree, or the kinakina tree. And quinine, remember, is that key ingredient that's still used in tonic water. So here's Dr. Ung again with the legend behind the discovery of quinine. So there is a South American legend that says that there was an Indian with a high fever that got lost in the Indian jungle. And he was very thirsty, he was confused, and he drank from a pool of water. And, he, and it tasted bitter. And so of course he thought he was poisoned because a lot of poisons are bitter, but his fever subsided and... And it turns out the pool that he drank from was surrounded by and probably dappled with the bark from these chinchona trees. And so this is how they, they found out that the bark of the chinchona tree was useful to treat malaria fevers. You know, uh, so many of our therapeutics come from nature. I'm not surprised at all that that's where that came from. And now how the bark and the knowledge of its properties made it to the Western world also has its own story. The European version is that a Spanish countess got malaria while she was in the mountains of Peru and she was cured by the locals. And so upon returning to Spain, she brought the bark with her and thus introduced quinine to Europe. Apparently the tree was called Chinchona by Carl Linnaeus because she's the Spanish Countess of Chinchon. <laughs> and you know, there are also records from Jesuit priests who wrote about this plant from their travels as missionaries. But of course, the first founders would have been indigenous people collecting the plant, not the Jesuit priests or the Spanish Countess. But this is believed to be how the chinchona bark made its way to Europe. And this is how we think the two French scientists isolated quinine from the bark. Now the bark was used in its whole form, just ground up for a long time when it first arrived in Europe. It took another hundred years or so before the French scientists were able to isolate the special components of the bark. Before that, they would just take the bark of the chinchona tree dry it and then grind it into a fine powder and then mix it into a liquid. So they might mix it into wine or another alcohol to counteract the bitter taste that it has. Um, it's amazing it took a hundred years for, for that development to come on where we're, we're creating things these days in, in you know, 
years or months. I know, just to think about the state of science that we're talking about, uh, mid-late 1600s, she brings it over to Europe. It's not until years and years later that French scientists make this big breakthrough. In 1822, French scientists, doctors, well, actually, I don't know if there were doctors back then, but the scientists Pierre Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Cavantou uh, extracted quinine from the bark. So at that point, then they had it. They had isolated the quinine chemical that could be used as medicine instead of just eating tree bark. You know, I'm, I'm sure everyone was happy not to be eating tree bark, even <laughs> if it was mixed with good wine. It was probably a much better tasting substance. Yes. <laughs> And then through a combination of factors, the Jesuit missionaries and the work also of the pharmaceutical industry, the isolated quinine began to make its way around the world and eventually to the United States. And even though it was in its infancy, the pharmaceutical industry did play a role here. Uh, you see, one of the first two apothecary shops in Europe to build factories to produce the quinine alkaloid was a name you'll probably recognize as a current day pharmaceutical giant. Merck and company. They were producing morphine, caffeine, cocaine, and quinine. And a few years later, there was a factory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, producing quinine right here in the United States. And this is the factory where our Missouri doctor, Dr. Sappington, would eventually source his quinine from. And that factory would eventually be bought by Merck. So in some ways, the story of John Sappington is part of this much larger story of pharmacy in the United States. You know, uh, I, I didn't know Merck went back that far, but the, f the fact that they were, uh, they were making quite a, quite a batch of different chemicals there that, that were probably pretty interesting to people. And, and the fact that Dr. Sappington here was able to get a hold of this material and, and start to prescribe it was, is just amazing. Yeah, and Philly was also the home of the first college of pharmacy, so it was a good place for this kind of a factory. And John Sappington did a large part of his medical training in Philly, so he would have already had connections there. Whether or not those connections played a role in him procuring the quinine or not, that's just speculation. But what we do know is that by the 1830s, he is producing his own recipe of fever pills with quinine as the main ingredient and a handful of other medicinal plants as well. Sarah Richardson again. I think it's in 1832 that he, I mean, he, he really devotes himself to producing lots of these pills that he devises a recipe for. You know, it sounds like he's really our first distributor here, uh, getting, getting the materials, uh, compounding them together and, and getting them out to people. Yeah, and it's curious to think about other people who would have been distributing at this time. This is also the time of, you know, snake oil salesmen and oh, yeah. traveling medicine shows. Uh, this is a lot more legitimate than a lot of those acts. Well, and, and where, he, where he left, he left, you know, the humors. And, you know, he sounds like he was one of the, the pioneers of, of real modern medicine. And Sarah Richardson points out, though, that it, this was not an easy sell. He was one of the first physicians to promote the use of quinine in this way. Most other people were really opposed to it at this time. And he, he actually, in the beginning, didn't even mention that quinine was in it because he knew there was such a stigma against it. It's a fascinating story of medical innovation or, or non-innovation, actually, because this treatment existed, uh, but people had a prejudice against it, uh, perhaps because it wasn't well known. I don't know. It's a little unclear, but it is clear that John Sappington took it and ran with it and had a crew of 
people, including his sons, and at one point a crew of 25 selling it all over this malaria-ridden part of the country. I, I can't imagine trying to sell a new drug in the 1800s based on, you know, science that no one understood. Uh, that, that had to be a tough sell to start. Yeah, and, and he's distributing it all over this part of the country. But like you say, they didn't know how it worked. They just knew that it did. But so now we, we do have a better idea now. So the first thing to say about how quinine works as a malaria treatment is that it works at the level of the blood. And it's important to mention this because the bloodstream is not the only place in the body where malaria does stuff. Here's Dr. Ung to help us understand the life cycle of the malaria parasite. Dr. Ung starts off when a mosquito infected with malaria bites a human or other animal. And when the mosquito bites, a specific form of the malaria parasite called sporozoites are then injected into your skin from the tiny saliva producing glands of the mosquito. And from there, these sporozoites travel through very small capillaries, microcapillaries, in your body, all the way to your liver. Where they establish a liver stage and replicate within a parasitophorous vacuole within a hepatocyte. And a hepatocyte is just a liver cell. So at this point, when the infection is in the liver, there are no disease symptoms yet. That's not until merozoites, a more mature form of the parasite, are released from the liver into your bloodstream. But while we're still in the liver, a person feels no symptoms. Once the parasites replicate within the liver cell, merozoites are released into the bloodstream where they can then infect a red blood cell. This is the stage that is responsible for all clinical symptoms. So once the parasites are in the blood, that's when a human would start to feel symptoms. It's also where the parasite feeds on your blood. And it's where signals are sent causing the parasite cells to differentiate sexually. And they won't recombine sexually to form new parasites until after another mosquito bites and takes those sexually differentiated forms of the parasite into itself. They sexually recombine in the mosquito and then differentiate into sparzoites that then migrate back to the salivary glands and can then infect a new human or other mammals. So it's only when a second mosquito bites the already infected person that those gnarly little sexually differentiated versions of the parasite will recombine inside the second mosquito to form more parasites to pass on to another person. And all of this recombining actually happens in the mosquito's midgut, basically in the mosquito's stomach. This is uh, the whole life cycle of, of this this parasite is just amazing how how complex it is and how just aggressive. It's wildly complex and wildly tiny. Yeah. I, I, I will admit I, I had a, a working knowledge of how the malaria life cycle worked, but I did not understand the second mosquito bite was required for the this, this sexual reproduction. Yeah, and so that is how malaria has really co-evolved with humans because humans, or at least another mammal, is required to transmit the disease. Yeah. So this is how the disease gets passed around without quinine or any other drugs intervening. So the way that quinine stops the spread is by working at that blood level when the parasite begins to snack on your red blood cells. Here's Dr. Ung again. The human red blood cell is a biconcave sphere and by weight, 
95% of the red blood cell consists of hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is super important for anti-malarial drugs. You get another science lesson here. Are you ready? I can't wait. Okay, so hemoglobin is composed of four units called globins. Sometimes diagrams of hemoglobin look like a butterfly with each globin unit like one of the lobes of the butterfly wings. And each of those globins has within it a chemical structure called a heme group. And most importantly, there's an iron wrapped up inside of that heme group. And when the malaria parasite munches on the blood cell, it begins to break down the hemoglobin so that the heme group is then freed up from the rest of the structure as the parasite makes your blood cell into its lunch. When it takes in the, the hemoglobin, um, it transports this by vesicle transport to the parasite digestive vacuole. Which you can think about like the parasite's stomach. And here, parasite proteases break down the hemoglobin, releasing heme from the globin. Okay, so now the heme is free. And this is a big deal. It's been broken down, the heme is free, it's been separated from the rest of the hemoglobin structure, and it actually becomes toxic to the parasite. But the parasite is prepared to detoxify it with a series of chemical conversions. Dr. Ung explains how the parasite does this detoxification and how quinine can interrupt that process. Heme is quite toxic to the parasite. The parasite will then have to convert alpha hematin to beta hematin, which can then form biocrystals to make hemozoin. And quinine has been shown to inhibit the formation of hemozoin. And thus, when you have quinine in infected red blood cells, there's an increase in free heme, which is then toxic to the parasites. So basically, if you've taken quinine, it will stop the parasite from being able to detoxify the heme, and the heme will then act as a poison to kill the parasite. That was broke down really well. That is, that is really fascinating. Now, of course, if we take ourselves back to Sappington's time, they didn't know exactly why it was working. They just knew that it was. Uh, a newspaper article that I found from the Missouri State Historical Archives notes that every house used to keep a box of Sappington's pills in their clock because at the time, clocks were used as medicine cabinets. <laughs> which I also didn't know. <laughs> I, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> so Dr. John Sappington is also part of the Santa Fe Trail Hall of Fame because of his role in treating malaria and thus enabling the passage of settlers into the western part of the United States. You know, if you think about it, the, the, the movement to the west was, was really a big deal, and, and malaria had to be a huge issue if it was spreading like that. You know, the, the, what he was able to do to, to find this, this therapeutic has really probably saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. And so in 1844, John Sappington publishes a book, The Theory and Treatment of Fevers. This was the first medical book published west of the Mississippi River. And he includes in this book his recipe for his quinine pills. This was clearly before patents and pharmaceutical distribution. He's just giving it all away. Oh, yes. So I do have his recipe. Would you like to see it? <laughs> sure. That'd be awesome. Here you go. You can read it to us. Oh, wow. We'll see if I can do it. Let's see. We have sulfate of quinone, 2 pounds, pulverized extract of licorice, 1.5 pounds, pulverized gum myrrh, 0.5 pounds, 
oil of sassafras. That sounds really nice. And aqua pura, I'm assuming water. So that makes 240 boxes or 24 pills a box. Oh, and it was made at 10 cents a box, but sold for 15 times the amount. I appreciate his business model. Wow, Sappington. <laughs> Making some money on the uh, Louisiana purchase. Wow. So he was open with the recipe, but clearly still a businessman. I, You know, I, I he gave away, it looks like, the recipe and the business model there. But uh, look, I, I imagine this was at a time before any of this was really appreciated. Mm-hmm. People probably thought he was the snake oil doctor, even though, you know, what he had was actually, there was good science behind it. He probably didn't have a lot of evidence to show that it was good science. No, so, certainly not, because they didn't know the, the hemoglobin structure. They weren't sure what was going on with the iron and the yeah. free heme and all of yeah. that. They had no idea. And, you know, even though people were not always treating malaria with his pills, eventually the use of quinine to treat malaria does become an accepted practice, such that by the American Civil War in the 1860s, it was considered a vital part of the war effort on both the Union and Confederate sides. Here's Sarah Richardson again with more on that history. In the early part of the Civil War, the Union Army purchased 19 tons of quinine, I read. They were actually lining soldiers up in the morning for something called Q-Call, and that would be the quinine mixed into some whiskey. <laughs> it was called Q-Call. Just like getting my kids to take something. You add something good, they'll take it easily. Just yeah. like it. Yeah. So it was a really important asset with both sides counting just a devastating number of malaria cases. The Union Army tallied more than a million cases of malaria. So it was a huge player in that conflict. Uh, I will say that the Confederates did not have access to quinine. They ran out very quickly, and the Confederacy was really trying to grapple with how are we going to make do without having any of the resources that the Union Army had. You know, who would have guessed it was, you know, all dates back to, again, bringing slaves to the U.S., generated this disease and, and that's really mm. what that's really what hurt the confederates i didn't even think about that uh, that that connection comes around again mm. and and a big reason that the confederates did not have this access to quinine or the chinchona bark was this union strategy to blockade the seaports there was a blockade on the confederacy that was an early early tactic to, to cut them off so they literally couldn't get physical access to the goods coming off of the ships. I, I didn't know the medical part of it was so important. I thought it was more uh, ammunition and, and food and, and other things. Of but the Union blockade, yeah, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the medical part of that never had occurred to me. Mm-hmm. And remember, they still hadn't even proved scientifically that mosquitoes were the carriers of the disease. Local wisdom and experience had long suggested it, but it wasn't confirmed until the 1880s, decades after the American Civil War. But eventually, a better understanding of the disease and quinine was gained, and scientists began to develop compounds in the lab inspired by quinine. The most successful of these compounds would eventually be called chloroquine. And, I mean, this was a really good compound, very effective. It became the most widely used treatment for malaria. Like, it was the drug to use for many years. But then probably because of its heavy use, chloroquine-resistant malaria began to develop in the late 1950s into the 80s. You know, and this is the problem we have with, with so many of the drugs that we make right now. So you get the resistance, and all of a sudden a drug that's super effective becomes really ineffective. So this meant that scientists needed to start looking for other options for treatment. So 
you remember that chloroquine was inspired by quinine, right? Which comes from an ancient South American medicinal plant. Well, it turns out that there's another ancient medicinal to be considered. The plant's name is Artemisia annua. This is Dr. Venerstrom. He works in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Yeah, Jonathan Venerstrom. I've been at UNMC College of Pharmacy since 1987. I'm a professor of pharmaceutical sciences, so I teach and we do research. I point out to him that on the side of his building it says Center for Drug Discovery. That's what it says on the building, right? So we're supposed to be doing drug discovery. So he talks about it so casually, but he's actually a big deal. He is the most modest individual I've ever met. He's his discoveries, the work that he's done has had such an impact globally, and, and he will be, you, you would be standing next to him at the supermarket and never know that the, the impact he's had. It's, it's amazing. And it, he has such a beautiful story of how he came to this research in tropical diseases as well, being raised by missionaries living in Ethiopia. And, and I know that you know Dr. Venerstrom, so you know a little bit of his story. Uh, yes, I do. And, and it's, it's really made him uh, one of the top researchers in the world for, for this area. So he recently was awarded an uh, American Chemical Society Award that uh, the other recipients uh, boast three or four Nobel laureates, uh, several individuals that have developed drugs that um, in other fields like pain have made billions of dollars. And he's making... Yeah, so, you know, malaria's market's pretty small, so he, he isn't making money on this. Because a lot of the drugs that end up being produced are essentially given away for malaria, correct? Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. The, the market, and that was one of the challenges with malaria drugs, is just, um, you know, incentivizing someone to develop it is still very expensive. It's, we're not in Dr. Sappington's time where we can just give drugs that we don't know the effects on. So to, to incentivize someone mm -hmm. to develop a new drug, um, you've, they've got to spend money. And at the end of the day, they aren't going to make much money on selling drugs in Africa and third world nations. So to incentivize it, most of these drugs are developed by nonprofits and, and really given away for free. Am I correct then that that's part of Unimed and the Medicines for Malaria Ventures organization, how you guys came into to have a role with, with this research, yes? Yeah, exactly. You know, we were fortunate to be able to identify the, the Medicines for Malaria Venture Group, and they brought together a, a coalition with Swiss Tropic Institute, Monash, and us, and really have financed the development of this so that it, it can be developed. And it's taken close to 20 years but the, the really exciting drug, the one that's a potential one-dose cure, is still in clinical trials right now. So 20 years of development and millions and millions of dollars of investment uh, could lead us to this gl global impact that we really want to see. And you're talking about the molecule and the drug that Dr. Venerstrom has been working on. Yes. And, you know, that's how long it takes to develop drugs now, close to 20 years. And so Dr. Venerstrom, he is leading some of just the most exciting research on this ancient medicinal plant, as he said there, Artemisia annua. He's doing all of this research right here in the heart of the Midwest in Omaha, Nebraska. So here's Dr. Venerstrom with more on this promising plant, Artemisia annua. It's a kind of a weedy looking plant. It's found in this country as well. It's sweet wormwood is another name for it. I would say that it's been a while since I've seen one, but they're about almost five feet tall. It's a kind of a tall, sort of a gangly looking plant. 
So it was in the 1970s, as chloroquine resistance was rising around the world, that some Chinese scientists began going through the ancient Chinese pharmacopoeia, the mile-long list of traditional medicinals used in China, and they came across this Artemisia annua plant. They isolated a very interesting molecule from this plant and uh, come up with some very effective drugs. You know, we have a similar background here, right? So they, they identified bark before. Now we've got ancient Chinese medicines. And so, so often we, we find a drug or, or something in nature that works, but not quite well enough. It may need to be modified. And, and so what scientists like Dr. Venestrom do is they, they change little pieces of, of the molecule to make it last in our blood a little longer, maybe be less toxic. Sometimes uh, some of these natural compounds have some toxicity. Right. And so, like you say, it is possible to just take the plant, harvest it out of the ground, extract the useful components. But the problem, it's really labor intensive to do that mm -hmm. and expensive. And also, as you say, we would like this to be a little bit stronger so we can eventually do that single dose treatment of malaria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's way better than eating bark way better than eating bark. <laughs> so this is where Venestrom and his team come in. Here is a clip of Venestrom and I in his office talking about the special compound within the plant that the Chinese scientists were able to isolate. It's, it's a very, it occurs in a very tiny amount in the plant, so you really have to work hard to extract it out of the plant. Does that structure have a name? Yes, uh, so the Chinese call it Qinghao Su or artemisinin is what we call it. Then they took that structure and did a little chemistry on that. So it's a c combination of lab chemistry and the plant chemistry. So the component of the plant is artemisinin. And the reason scientists are so interested in it is because it's a peroxide bond. So a peroxide bond is a oxygen-oxygen bond. They tend to be fairly unstable. And in chemistry, when something is called unstable, it's kind of like that friend you may have who just seems to be upset by everything. You know, anything will just set her off. And, and on the other hand, if it's stable in chemistry, then that's your unflappable friend. You know, just steady, even keel, nothing bothers them. And the cool thing about the peroxide bond of artemisinin is that it's pretty stable until it's around one type of dude. And that dude is iron. Because when artemisinin and other peroxides like it are around iron, it's extremely reactive. And if you remember earlier when we were talking about the parasite munching on your red blood cells, technically called hemoglobin digestion, when that's happening, hemoglobin gets broken down, the heme is freed from the rest of the structure, and there's iron inside that heme, which the peroxide bond will react with. So this is the point where artemisinin-inspired drugs like the one Venderstrom has been working on will take action. Here he is to explain a little more. So during the process of hemoglobin digestion, some iron is released in the form of heme. This reacts chemically with a peroxide bond of the natural product. It's a very unusual structure, but the peroxide bond is what is key to the antimalarial activity. And the peroxide bond can really only do its thing because the iron in the free heme that's been released when the parasite snacks on your blood cells. So it's the reaction of the iron with the peroxide that produces reactive intermediates that um, kill the parasite, basically.
Yeah, yeah, we don't want things that, that we ingest that make us sick all the time. We only want it to be active around the bad dudes. The really important thing is how the peroxide bond interacts with the iron in the free heme, creating essentially poison for that parasite, but not until it interacts with that iron in the free heme. And like we said earlier, it is possible to extract the useful parts from the natural plant and get this peroxide bond interaction, but it would be much more efficient to produce it in a lab. So that's what Vennerstrom's team has done. And, but he says that they were just one of many teams with the same idea. A lot of people got the idea that peroxides might be interesting because of the discovery of artemisinin. So we were just one of the chemistry groups that started to make much simpler peroxides. And we were fortunate to uh, sort of leverage the chemistry discovered by Carl Griesbaum in Germany. I was fortunate to hire his student as a young postdoctoral fellow. What's her name or his name? Uh, Dong. In fact, I, I think in those days, it may have been a fax, uh, asking him if he had any students, because I was fortunate to have some World Health Organization funding to work on discovering an antimalarial peroxide. There's a certain level of modesty there that I, it just makes me smile every time I hear him talk. Well, this is why I needed to have you on the show, <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that somebody toots his horn. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But, you know, as he says, he, he was fortunate to get this funding, which is true, and, and any group of researchers is fortunate to get the funding. So now that we kind of understand the chemistry, can you help us understand the difference in, in terms of the funding process and the way that money is distributed when we think of some big pharma companies that are just rolling deep versus yeah. these guys. Yeah, so so really, um, pharma companies don't do a lot of research anymore. What they do is, is um, some late-stage development and distribution. Academics are doing a lot of that research, but the problem is, um, separate from the, what it was like in the 1800s, we could just create a pill and sell it. Right now, we've got to go through a lot of testing to make things safe and effective. And and the current estimate right now to, to get a drug from idea to product is around $4 billion. So what we have to do is partner with companies that are willing to invest money into developing these drugs. And to do that, they've got to have some ability to sell those drugs for a profit on the backside. And so the, the, what we're seeing right now in the industry is a real drive to trying to get drugs um, that make a lot of money. So if a company is not going to feasibly be able to make money off of the drug, that's when another organization is going to have to come in and incentivize the research process and the drug development process. Yeah, yeah. When we develop something like a malaria drug, the market is is much smaller. There's not as much money on the backside. And so what Unimed does is, is we try to find that right partner, whether it's Pfizer and hopefully Big Royal and drugs, or a nonprofit group like the World Health Organization, uh, Medicines for Malaria Ventures, that will help develop the drugs to create the product. And when you say that there's not a big market for malaria, that you don't mean that there's not a lot of people who would benefit. You just mean those yeah. people won't be paying for yeah, it. Yeah, there's there's not a financial incentive right. for it. So there there's clearly it's 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 the most prevalent disease in the world. The mosquito is is absolutely the most dangerous animal is on the really? planet. Is it really? Is it the most prevalent in the world? Yeah, yeah. Still, so there's half, wow. a, half a million people die of malaria every year. And it's, you know, if you look, I, I just recently told my kids to try to figure out the most dangerous animal on the planet, you know, and they guess sharks or lions. And, and actually, if you look at it, mosquitoes by far, tenfold more than any other animal, kill more people in the world than any other creature. 
And, you know, there isn't as much funding for development in the U.S. for these as, as there is on the international community. Hmm, that's interesting. You know, at the end of the day, it's if profits still drive, and, mm. and these are for-profit companies, and if they can't show an impact at the, the end, they, they have trouble investing. Well, <laughs> sorry for being a downer there. Jeez. <laughs> so, so just out of curiosity, do you give your children a lot of pop quizzes about uh, biology and, and, and health? You know, they, they probably don't appreciate all the pop quizzes <laughs> they get. But, you know, we have car rides to school and we got to stay active somehow. Well, there you go. So that's a little bit about the funding of things. But when I was in Dr. Venerstrom's lab, I really wanted to see how they make these things, these special peroxides. So Dr. Venerstrom took me over to the ozone generator. Well, uh, I can show you in here. Okay, so we walk into this little room. There's a fume hood against the wall. It's this huge ventilated box with a big glass door so you can see inside. So basically, this is an ozone generator. So you pass a oxygen, a flow of oxygen gas, and basically it uh, creates a, just a machine that has a big spark going. It's and and uh, a spark. A spark, and it's like lightning. So that uh, flow of oxygen goes through there. When it hits that electrical spark, when it flows through there, some ozone is produced, so which is a reactive form of oxygen. Then that flows into your reaction vessel. He opens the door to the fume hood. And then the ozone is what uh, we used to form the peroxides. So this is a box that we're looking at. Just a simple box. Filled with lightning. Basically. It's a big a big electrical sparking machine. And it makes a big send oxygen through a tube into the lightning box. Right. And some of the oxygen is activated or is converted into what's known as ozone, it reacts with a lot of things. But if you do it right, and if you can control the reaction, you can form some interesting products. And you formed some peroxide bonds? Yes, and that's the chemistry that was invented in Germany by Karl Griesbaum. So we used his new chemistry to come up with our peroxide. So Without his invention of new chemistry, we couldn't have done this project. So using the ozone generator, Dr. Venestrom, and then the postdoctoral student that he hired, Yu Shangdong, and the rest of the team have already created one molecule that's been taken over by a pharmaceutical company for future development into a usable drug. But it's the second molecule they created that's really showing promise to be developed into a drug taken as a single dose. Not easy to achieve, but the second one lasts a lot longer in your bloodstream. And lasting longer in your bloodstream, meaning it doesn't wear off as fast, makes a single dose seem possible to achieve. But they can't say for certain yet. There are still details to be worked out by the organization now in charge of the molecule and the drug development. Because it's actually out of Venerstrom's hands at this point. He and his team created the molecule, and now it gets passed on to another team for further development. He describes the process of drug development kind of like a relay race. We're the first lap, so we hand the baton off to the next people who know what to do next. So it has a life of its own. It's being studied. How do you administer to patients, especially kids? How do you make it so that they can take the drug without getting sick or 
just sick with the large mass of the drug they have to take. So making sure that they can swallow the dose as big as it is, is a, is a pretty big deal. I mean, especially for kids, but for adults too. So that's what they're working on now. You know, in, in, with the people I've spoken to, when, when you're dealing with these drugs over in the third world, getting people to take a cocktail of several drugs over a period of two to three weeks is really difficult. You may not be sure you're going to see the same people day after day in the clinic that you've set up. Absolutely. Wherever you happen to be. Access to medicines, they lose it, they don't take it. And that's really what develops resistance when you only take some of your medicine and you can't finish the cocktail. The parasite realizes how to change itself and that's where you start to see your, your resistance. So if you can get to a single dose, the number of lives it will change and the chance to help hopefully stop resistance, um, it could be phenomenal. It's, it's game changer. This is what they're banking a lot of the hope on for the future of this, which is, again, a disease that kills more people globally than anything else. And then, of course, the, the next stage would be to make it palatable, to make it bearable to take whatever this dose has to be. And this actually brings us back to Dr. Ung's favorite cocktail that we started this whole episode with, the gin and tonic, because this drink, the gin and tonic, was created in the British colonies of India by adding gin to tonic water in order to make the bitter-tasting quinine of the tonic water more palatable and easy to drink. Well, so we can put a little gin with our, our new drug and make it great. I mean, I'm not suggesting we give the children gin to take their medicine, but maybe there's something there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a... This is why I'm not on the drug discovery team. <laughs> maybe that's just the adult version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's worth noting that Schweppes, the original carbonated tonic water in the United States, only achieved its almost monopoly on U.S. tonic water because of an ag campaign designed by a man who trained at the Midwestern institution Gallup, the national polling institution currently located in downtown Omaha. You know, it all comes back to Omaha. I mean, that's the show, right? (laughs) (laughs) So this ad campaign for their tonic water, of course, used in gin and tonics and other drinks, it promised that their tonic water not only had quinine, but also something they called Schweppervescence, those tiny carbonated bubbles that just make it easier to drink. I have a clip from one of their 1950s TV ads here. No other mixer has Schweppes bittersweet flavor and rare effervescence. Effervescence? You used to call those little bubbles Schweppervescence. Schweppervescence, of course. Those remarkable little bubbles that last the whole drink through. I think I just learned a new word. Schweppervescence. Schweppervescence. (laughs) So, speaking of cocktails, I know it may not feel like the end of the episode, and that's because it's not, because we are actually going to tape the final moments of this episode at the listening party for this episode because we have a very special treat for our focus group of listeners this month. We have an extraordinary local bartender here in Omaha who's going to fix us up a batch of Dr. Sappington-inspired cocktails at the listening party. I gave him the recipe for Sappington's fever pills, and he's going to whip it up for us. So even though we can't actually taste the original fever pills, we'll get pretty close. This sounds fantastic. So Dr. Dixon and I will sign off here in the studio, and we'll meet you at the bar. 
Yeah, I'm Tyler Schaefer, uh, owner-operator of the Inkwell Bar here in uh, Countryside Village. And uh, yeah, we're just doing a uh, little riff on a gin and tonic using some of the components from uh, Sappington's original recipe. So one of them was sassafras. So I have some sassafras bitters here All to right. put in the cocktail. It tastes kind of like root beer, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. essentially yeah. root beer, mm -hmm. if you would. Um, so we're going to use gin. Uh, if gin's involved in a gin and tonic riff, I'm going to have to use some lime. And that is actually actually because of the... Um it's the citric acid actually helps the quinine itself uh, dissolve into the drink. So uh, at least legend has it that there is some chemistry behind it. And uh, you got some chicharrón bark, yeah, especially for this night. I did. All right. Well, we got to get a good cheers. probably a good time that I will say thank you so much to Dr. Dixon for being my Midwestern co-host. Well, thanks for having me. That's great. You've been listening to Made in the Middle, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We thank our Midwest co-hosts, Dr. Michael Dixon of Unimed and Drs. Caroline Ung and Jonathan Vennerstrom from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Thanks also to Sarah Richardson of American History Magazine, the Missouri State Historical Archives, and our intern, Vivian Caniglia. Our Dr. Sappington libations were, of course, provided by the Inkwell Bar right here in Omaha, Nebraska. We had a lot of help this episode connecting with guests from the creators of the show Innovation Overground. You can find their science podcast wherever you listen. This podcast features original music by Ben So Lee and is produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Todd Hatton, and Joshua LeBure. Our theme music is written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn. Be sure to reach out to us with any comments or requests for citations through our Twitter or Instagram, that's at KIOS Omaha, or by email, emily.chennewton at kios.org. And of course, subscribe to the podcast and you'll get monthly reminders for every new episode of Made in the Middle. Mm -hmm.